Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Welcome to 2023. If you are a longtime podcast listener, this means we are entering into our fourth year of the As a Woman podcast. Isn't that crazy? I'm so excited and so proud and just truly so honored that so many of you have spent your most valuable commodity, your time, here listening to me and the podcast. Today, I want to talk about when to have kids. And I know that's a vague question. And a lot of you who listen to the podcast, maybe are trying to have kids. So this might annoy you. But ultimately, let's think about it as family planning, ultimately, in multiple realms. And when should you have one kid? When should you have the next? And a few things that really, I just wish people knew when they were thinking about their family planning. Before we dive into this, I do want to cover this week's Fertility in the News. Well, for this week's Fertility in the News, I want to talk about Ricky Lake and the business of birth control. She has been making a big stink lately. She did a documentary, The Business of Being Born, which really put down hospital birth and doctors and was talking about how amazing home birth is and separate topic completely. But the one thing I'll say about that is... I believe that giving birth isn't about you giving birth. It's about the baby. I have seen so many circumstances where things went from low risk and fine to terrible in mere moments. And I would never want anybody I love or care for to not have immediate access to higher level care for their baby or their self if they needed it. Childbirth can be deadly. So back when she came out, business of being born, I was not a fan, and now she's tackling the business of birth control. And a viral clip went out there saying birth control pills are putting you into menopause. I think she says hormonally or scientifically, being on birth control is like being in menopause. And she goes on to some other crazy things about how it changes your pheromones, and it's the reason why people are getting divorced because they're on birth control and they become attracted to the wrong person. I don't know about you, I didn't become attracted to my husband because of any like scent or attraction on that level. I loved who he is in a person inside and birth control pills did not change my perception of him. He's smart, funny, caring, kind, a joy to be around. And I'm also attracted to him both on and off of birth control pills. So that's just ridiculous. But let's deal with this scientific situation about the menopause thing. All right, menopause. Menopause is when you are out of eggs. What that means is inside your ovary, you no longer have eggs. Your brain, remember, it sends out every month FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, which is a well-named hormone that stimulates an egg to grow. If there's no eggs to grow, then there's nothing to stimulate. Normally, 
an egg starts growing and making estrogen, the brain senses that estrogen and gets all excited and then decreases FSH. So FSH is high when you need an egg to grow and FSH is low when there's estrogen around and you don't need an egg. So they yin and yang together. Now, what happens in menopause? Now there are no eggs. So when there are no eggs, it wants there to be estrogen so bad that it is sending out literally all the FSH it has. And yet your estrogen, your estradiol is low because there is no estrogen. And having low estrogen causes a whole slew of symptoms that we know about with menopause. It can cause mental dulling, feeling tired, insomnia, vaginal dryness, low energy, just to name a few. That's menopause, high FSH, low estrogen, low estrogen symptoms. There's no progesterone in menopause, let's just remember. No progesterone because progesterone is only made after you ovulate. You can't ovulate if you're not growing an egg, so there's no progesterone. Birth control pills. The combination birth control pill, commonly known as the pill or oral contraceptive pills, is a combination of a synthetic estrogen, ethanol estradiol, and a variety of different types of progesterones. So some progesterone and ethanol estradiol in different levels makes up the combined pill. The pill is giving your body daily estrogen and progesterone. That is the opposite of menopause. Because your body's getting estrogen, your brain does not send out FSH and your FSH is low. Again, the opposite of menopause. So you're having low levels of FSH and normal to high levels of estrogen and progesterones. This is the exact opposite of menopause. I'm not saying the combined birth control pill is normal, meaning it's replicating nature. No, it's a different type of estrogen. You have a variety of different progestins. In nature, we have a cycle. You don't have the same every day. Menopause is the same every day. The pill is the same every day. Nature is your FSH rises because your estrogen is low. You make a follicle or an egg. It makes estrogen. Estrogen rises, FSH drops. Estrogen is high enough and now you ovulate and have progesterone. Now you have both estrogen and progesterone. When you're not pregnant, corpus luteum dies, progesterone drops, estrogen drops. You get a period. Estrogen is low, so FSH rises, getting an egg for the next cycle. And it goes on over and over again. That's nature. That's normal cycling if everything's working well. The pill is meant for a variety of different purposes, one of which is to help you not get pregnant. And if you want to not be pregnant, the absolute best way is not ovulating. If I can prevent you from ovulating, then there is no egg to fertilize. There is no embryo to implant. I don't have to worry about the other things. So if I prevent your brain from sending out FSH, you're not going to ovulate. And that's the whole concept behind the pill. Yes, the combined pill can be used for a variety of other things, including management of different period symptoms. It can help with acne. It can help with the pain of endometriosis or heavy bleeding associated with fibroids or having more regular cycles. It can lower testosterone, which can be a problem with PCOS. It can regulate your cycle, which we love in fertility treatments. It can be a great suppressive option leading into IVF. It can allow you to not ovulate so you can have reproductive surgery. 
has many different uses also. But to say that the pill is literally the devil because it's putting you into menopause at an early age, I want you to understand that is just fake news, false information, not accurate. Ricky Lake is doing you dirty on this one. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993, but women belong in scientific research? They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No one shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. All right, but getting back to the episode, I wanted to talk about planning your family and when to have kids. I've shared this before, but just personally, I remember back in medical school and y'all know I am a little bit older and egg freezing was not an option. It was still experimental. I could not walk into a doctor's office and say, I want to freeze my eggs. But I remember being a medical student and sitting at the Starbucks in Austin on Guadalupe, like by the triangle. I can tell you the exact one if you're in Austin. But I remember sitting there with my friends and we were studying. In med school, you go through all these different rotations, but you also have to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. And I remember talking to these friends saying, what will allow me to have kids? And plotting out like, what age will I be when I can have children if I choose this career or this career? And I was really operating under the idea that I could not have children until I was done with my medical training. That was just the 
unstated lay of the land at that time period that you had to get through training before you could have your family. But I always knew I wanted to be a mom. I know there's some people who aren't sure. For me, it was a must do. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a mom. I wanted to be both of those things since I was very young. And I knew I wanted that to happen. And I really wanted a big family. And I have two kids. And I will go into part of that in this episode also. But sitting there, I really felt like this doctoring thing had to come first for a substantial period of time. And I think there's a lot of us who feel that way about our careers or that we make these assumptions about what we can or can't do. In the end, I guess fast track if you're newer here, I chose emergency medicine. So I was an ER doctor for a year. I matched into one of the best ER programs in the country. The reality is I just loved taking care of people clinically. I loved getting to know people. But I really quickly in emergency medicine found out a couple of things. I needed to be a bigger part of my patient's story. And I know that sounds maybe like it doesn't make sense. And as a medical student, I didn't know this, that I needed continuity of care. In med school, we use the continuity of care word as if you're going to be somebody's pediatrician and seeing them from when they're born to age 18. And I don't really want that continuity of care. So I never thought this was something that I needed. But what I found out that I needed was to be able to follow somebody through a problem. And I wanted to see them from the beginning to the end of that problem. And that's the exact opposite of what happens in the emergency room. You see somebody from the beginning of end to your shift, and then you pass the buck and you leave. And it bothered me so much. What happened to them? Did I do the right thing? Are they okay? Did I diagnose them right? How are they doing? I needed that follow-up. I needed to see them through the problem. And ultimately, That led me to having a critical moment where I realized that I needed to pick a field that really brought me joy and that I could figure out the other pieces of the puzzle, how much or how little I wanted to work, what my schedule would be like, and when I had kids somewhere later down the road. And I say that because part of why I chose emergency medicine, I liked all the clinical things and people in the ER are really fun and cool. Like if you know an ER doctor in your life, they are fun. They are very fun people, and I liked being around fun people. But I also thought, well, ER residency is three years, and then I'm done and can start my family and their shift work. So later on, I could work as much or as little as I want, only work a few shifts a month, and have a lot of time to be home with my kids. This shift work murdered me, going from days to nights, and these really long stretches of work really was so bad. For me, right? I'm an Enneagram one. I'm a type A. You guys know this. So I don't know on what planet I thought I could have this rotating schedule and it would work for me. It made me very stressed out. I couldn't have any type of routine or schedule. And that is what makes my world turn. And I was maybe in denial about it. Switching to OBGYN was very scary because one, everybody said I was crazy. Two, OBGYN has this reputation for being so mean and so hard. Three, I went from a non-surgical to a surgical field. And four, I completed my ER year. So I was already one year in. I could have just done two more years and been done. But I started over in OBGYN to do four more years. So off the bat, I increased my training by two years. And then I quickly decided I wanted to do a fellowship and REI. Reasons why are... 
I'm nerdy and I loved it. I love the science. I love the patient stories, but also in the ER, you call consults a lot. You call people to help you. And I had this strong desire to know every single thing about a very small topic, which is the opposite of the ER. So when I thought, Hey, I can know everything about the hormones and the menstrual cycle and your fertility, that just sounded amazing to me. Okay. So I took a three-year fellowship and suddenly now I have signed myself up for eight years of postgraduate training. That's insane. And I had to shift when we wanted to have kids and I wanted them. Remember, this was one of my goals and all I had ever done for family planning was put it in the future. When I'm done with training, we'll start to have kids. And I was married. We got married in our third year of medical school. So obviously some people are waiting to find a partner. That wasn't my situation, but I now had to face the reality of I'm going to have to start trying for kids somewhere in this training process. And when is that going to be? And what is that going to look like? And what am I going to do? And I have a lot of things to say about it. And we are halfway through the episode and now we're going to get to the meat of it. So hope you didn't mind me sharing a little bit about my personal story in this. The short answer of when to have children is whenever you are ready. Your work will replace you. You can still make career strides after you're a parent. And I will tell you, I have been more successful since I've been a mom. Have I been busier? Oh my gosh. Yes. It's life changing when you have a child, how suddenly you have lack of control of so many things and you are pulled in just so many directions. You're pulled everywhere. But I've also really centered on this idea that it better be worth it. What I'm going to do and give my time to, it better be worth not spending time with my kids. It better be worth it. It better spark this creative, joyful side of me intellectually be curiosity. It better add to me and make me a better person and make my life better because those little people, they're amazing. And I would love to spend all the time with them. And so it's allowed me to evaluate things and truly as somebody who's a pleaser, say no to a lot more opportunity and fine tune what it is I spend my time on. But I had this fear that I just wouldn't be able to accomplish these things after I became a mom and that I needed to accomplish all these career things first. And I still did. I still felt that way through medical training and I did not start trying to have kids until after I was accepted into REI fellowship. REI fellowship is really competitive. So that's reproductive endocrinology and infertility. It's a three-year fellowship. Half of it is research and half of it's clinical. There's so few programs all over the country. In a given year, there's between 40 to 50 spots. And you have to do all this research and residency. And I really gave it all to try to have this job that I love. But so we made the plan. We'll wait until I get in. I didn't have a backup plan, but I wait till I at least get in and then we'll start trying. And I was so unprepared for how hard it would be. A few things. One, I'd been on birth control pills for eternity. Now I love the pill. I know we talked about it earlier and everybody has their own thing. And if you don't love the pill, I'm fine with that. It doesn't matter to me, but I love the pill. It makes my skin good. I like not having a period ever. I love it. I did not want to stop the pill early, 
But because I'd been on the pill so long, I had no idea what my cycles were like and I had no idea how to track my cycles, even though I understood the menstrual cycle, I'd never once given thought to when I was ovulating or when my period comes. And shockingly, we're not really taught that in OBGYN residency, like how to track your cycle, how to use an OPK, what are methods of fertility awareness. So I had to dive into all this natural fertility stuff and learn how to track my cycles and figure out what's going on with my cycles because I had this luteal phase defect and I had a lot of miscarriages. I think I'm going to have to rename this episode to when I decided to have children because I'm using my experience to give you advice and I swear there'll be some professional tips in here. I was cliche the I've been on birth control pills. I've been preventing pregnancy for so long and now I can't get pregnant. I don't even know what to do. I was so overwhelmed by loss. I had some traumatic loss, bleeding while running the L&D floor. I remember doing C-sections and overseeing the floor while just hemorrhaging. I remember stopping on my way home because I was bleeding through my clothes to go to a bathroom and started throwing up. I was so sick and it was really hard to help people have their families and yet be constantly miscarrying. And my fourth pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy. And this one was really what just sent me over the edge because I had no risk factors for an ectopic and my initial hormone levels looked really good. Jason was actually at a bachelor party for his best friend in Vegas. And we were in North Carolina at this time. I was a fertility fellow and my nurse had to give me methotrexate. Jason had to fly home. It physically was so terrible. And then I had to take a break from trying. And I really was so depressed during that time period. And this is when I decided to make some really big overhauls on my life and our lifestyle. And this is when we started going through fertility treatments and then ultimately had our two kids. So we had Campbell and then we conceived really soon with Rhett right after he was this miraculously surprised child. And honestly, I could have had four or five kids. I love them so much and I just love who they are and I love raising them, but I could not take the heartbreak of loss and being in that position anymore. And it was not putting me in a good place. And I was a better mom for saying, I'm so lucky to have these kids. I'm going to focus in on them. Now, what I wish, I wish we had started trying when I was really ready, which was years earlier. I understand I had all these reasons why I couldn't, but it would have allowed me to identify certain problems earlier that ultimately could have helped us. And we might have a different size family. If I were going through all of this in the current age, like now, I would absolutely freeze my eggs. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Because it gives you so many more options. If you know that's one of your life goals, if you can freeze eggs in your 20s or early 30s, it is going to open so many more doors for you down the road. I wish I had been able to realize that this devastating impact of medical training, what it does for your body. And medicine is not the only job that does this. We just do it really well, which is super ironic because we're supposed to help you get healthy and encourage health, yet we destroy ourselves. We do not sleep. We eat junk. We overdrink to cope with the burden of emotions and the exhaustion which comes from being trained in the American medical training system. Working 100 hours a week as a resident and then doing research and having to study, it is just so hard. So I never worked out. I never slept enough. I was a vegan, but junk food. I drank too much. And those things are so bad for your body. And I'd wish I'd been able to really say, I'm going to take care of me. And I can do that in the context of training. And I probably could have then, but I did not understand how important it was. And I did not prioritize it. So I wish before we started trying to conceive that I would have prioritized getting sleep. And I would have stopped drinking or at least drank less. And I would have eaten whole foods and less sugar and less processed food. And I would have moved my body in some way, even if it's just 10 minutes of yoga or walking outside. And that I would have talked to a therapist way back then and done things that are good for your mental and physical and spiritual and emotional self. Because I just let myself get so destroyed for a lack of a better word. And maybe that's being dramatic, but when we think about it, it really is bad for your body. All of those behaviors increase our inflammation. Eating sugar, eating processed food, not sleeping. Remember, sleep is when cellular repair and healing happens. Having high cortisol levels, being really stressed out, not moving your body, having all these toxins in your system, those things cause inflammation. And one thing I know more than anything else as a fertility doctor is that inflammation is so toxic to our life. It is really toxic to getting pregnant. Our body senses this inflammation as not the ideal environment to get pregnant. So I wish I'd taken better care of myself and focused on prioritizing my own health well before I wanted to get pregnant. And I also wish I would have stopped birth control pills sooner and, you know, used condoms or other methods, but really been able to track my cycles and know what was happening with my body, learn about ovulation. So if you're thinking about trying to start a family, I want you to learn from some of my lessons, but I want you to think about there's no right or wrong time to have kids, but there is too late, or there is a time where later might increase the chance of infertility, needing fertility treatments, or not having the family size that you want. You can mitigate that by trying earlier or by freezing your eggs. I promise you, the career, the lifestyle stuff, you can figure that out. And I know maybe that seems overwhelming, but I swear you can. 
You can figure that out. You can make it work. What you can't always get later are your kids. And I think it's really important to realize how your body is one system and all those things you do, they really add up and you should take care of yourself because that's going to help you on so many different levels and you should learn about your body. And if you know you want kids, I would add getting your ovarian reserve checked, like an AMH level is going to be helpful just in understanding what you may be up against. If you're purposefully waiting to conceive, I've definitely had patients who've gotten an AMH and it has changed their family for the better because now they know and they can make different decisions. I always say you can't make decisions off data you don't know. But planning your kids, I want you to really think about a few things. And I covered this in episode number one of this entire podcast. What is your goal? If your world, you could write the story of your life. How many kids do you have? At what age do you have them? How far apart in age are they? And then you need to work backwards and you need to start getting prepared before that first one and get tested before you've been trying for a year. I just still don't love that. And start thinking about a plan and taking care of your body and understanding your period. And then if you do the math, it is harder for everybody to get pregnant at age 37 and older. And so if you want four kids and you're starting at 34, I want you to do the math. Your chance of getting pregnant per month, this is based on Ann Steiner's Time to Conceive study. This was published in Fertility and Sterility in 2016. It followed people without infertility. Your chance of getting pregnant if you've never had a baby before and you're age 30 to 33 is about 17 to 19% per month. As you get older, it drops. Age 34 to 37, 11 to 12% per month. 38 to 39, 5% per month. 40 to 44, 3%. Now, if you've had a child, you have a little bit higher chance. Between 36 to 39, 16 to 17%. And 40 to 44, 10%. And that's largely selection bias because people who've had a child have sperm, have open fallopian tubes. They have some basic parts that we know are working. But ultimately, if you're waiting to start your family and you want a bigger family, does it make sense? And if it doesn't, what are you going to do about it? Because when do goals happen if we don't do something about them? And maybe you don't do much. Maybe you're like me and goal A is becoming a doctor and you focus on goal B when you get there. And maybe the end result is you don't quite have as many kids as maybe you wanted, but you end up still with children and you're happy and you're very lucky. But what would it look like if we'd started earlier? Would we have had the same difficulties if we had made changes earlier? What would it have looked like if I'd frozen eggs? I don't have the answer there. But those are things that I have to sit with and I want you to really think through these because you might be at a time now where the decisions you make, how close together your kids are going to be or what you're going to do next can change your entire life. Lastly, fertility is not guaranteed. Just because you had a baby once doesn't mean you'll be able to get pregnant again. Secondary infertility is real. And so I don't say all of this just to try to make you feel bad if you've been trying and you say goals are worthless because it's not working. But I am trying to share a little bit about me and my story and the things I've learned along the way and trying to encourage people to really not put trying to get pregnant or even thinking about their fertility or that second or third baby on the back burner, but make it a more active process. 
All right, now I'm going to answer some of your fertility questions for fertility's sake, FFS. Every week I dive in and I answer some of your fertility questions. These are questions that you leave on my Instagram every Monday. I will put a question box up. And so feel free to go in and ask a question and we will answer it every week here. And sometimes we will do Q&A episodes. You can also call the As A Woman podcast and leave a voicemail. 657-229-3672. I love episodes where we are answering your voicemail questions. All right. So advice on recovering from a miscarriage, specifically a blighted ovum. I have personal experience on this one and it is not very fun. The reality is one thing my doctor told me that really stuck with me was that not every pregnancy is going to make it. We can have hopes and dreams for an embryo or pregnancy, but in the end, not everyone's going to become one of our children. And so just because it wasn't meant to be means there's nothing you could have done that would have changed the outcome. And you need to release your mind of all the what ifs. Did I do something wrong? What if I hadn't done that? Should I have taken more of this? Was it that workout I did? What about that time we had sex? None of those things caused your miscarriage. Miscarriage is a normal part of human reproduction. Humans do not have genetically normal embryos all the time, and losing pregnancies at early stages is a part of the process. Just believe that it is one chapter in your book, and the book is going to get better, and hold on to that belief, and try to not let yourself get overwhelmed with the anxiety. How often do you see Asherman's after one pregnancy ending in DNC? Now, this is a hard one because I have a lot of bias. If you have Asherman's, you're coming to me. Asherman's is scar tissue in the endometrium caused by trauma. Most commonly, this is retained placenta. It can be retained products after a miscarriage, a septic miscarriage, or an infection after miscarriage, an infection after birth, postpartum hemorrhage, uterine trauma or perforation, scar tissue from fibroids or uterine surgery, or even I've seen it once from IUD placement. However, if you don't have Asherman's, you don't come to me. So of course I see more of them because they get referred and I'm the specialist for this. I will say overall, it is rare to get Asherman's from one DNC if everything goes normal. But if you have a complication that can change things, and the biggest complications I see is one, uterine perforation or a hole in the uterus. And number two is retained products, not getting everything from the DNC or needing repeats. So if you're not getting everything or how do you know, also I always recommend following HCG levels down or pregnancy tests down, get your HCG all the way to zero. And then, you know, all those placental cells are gone. As far as poking a hole, this is usually something that is detected at the time of the procedure. I will say much less common now because typically it's done with ultrasound. People are very careful. We use suction. It's a very different than it used to be when you use blind curettes. Although in emergency situations, I've still seen it happen. But typically that's for postpartum hemorrhage or placental issues after birth or a second trimester birth because the uterus is bigger and thinner than it is in the early first trimester. Ultimately, low. If you get your period back, that's a great sign. If you don't get your period back after a DNC, you should schedule an appointment. 
If you're worried, ask your doctor for imaging. That's easy to order, and we can just make sure that there is no issues. All right, next, how to deal with an azoospermia diagnosis. This is so hard. Azoospermia is having no sperm. One of the patients that always will be in my mind is this couple who started trying to get pregnant at age 36, and they tried for a year. They actually asked their OBGYN if they could get a referral, and their OB reassured them, wait for the full year. They then came in to see me, and we did the basic fertility evaluation. We did an HSG to see if the uterus and fallopian tubes were normal, checked ovarian reserve, and checked sperm, and sure enough, there was no sperm, no sperm count. This was a type of azoospermia where it was obstructive, so luckily they were able to go in and extract sperm from the testes, and then they had to do IVF. And this patient just always felt like they wasted so much time, and a simple semen analysis months to a year earlier could have saved them all of that time and heartbreak and made their chance of IVF better because they would have gotten to start it sooner. So to me, this is just a hard diagnosis. Ultimately, azoospermia can be obstructive like the patient I just talked about. Even though that stinks, you still can genetically conceive. So I think that is easier to cope with. You have to accept doing IVF and what comes with that. But if it's true azoospermia, not an obstruction, just there's no sperm being made, I think that is harder because that means you're going to have to not have genetic children with your partner. Use a sperm donor or adopt embryo donation, something else. I will say this, there is so much more that makes a family than genetics. And maybe you're gonna tell me it's easy for me to say, but it's easy for me to say because I've seen hundreds of families, beautiful, loving, amazing families who not both parents are genetically related to that child and it does not matter at all. If anything, it just speaks how much they both believed they wanted to raise a child and how loved and desired that child was. So try to hang on to the fact that family is people who love you and care for you and put your needs above their own and not who were just genetically related to. All right, next is PCOS. How many rounds of letrozole should we do before moving on to another treatment while trying to get pregnant? For this one, it really does depend. Personally, I like to check everything before you do any treatment. I like to check that the uterus and tubes are normal and the sperm count's fine before you give letrozole or Clomid for anovulation. A good example is the patient I just spoke about. If we go and find out there's no sperm and you've been doing letrozole for a year and paying for it, so frustrating. But I do know that some OBGYNs or family practitioners, especially in more rural areas, might prescribe ovulation induction agents to a young patient with no risk factors and then do testing after. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Just know you don't know what you don't know. But let's presume anovulation is our only issue and the sperm is fine and the tubes are fine and the uterus is fine and you respond. So remember, you have to respond to the medication, which means you have to ovulate. That can be detected with ultrasound, a progesterone level a week after ovulation, or by OPK, 
but you need to confirm that you ovulated and that itself may take multiple months or cycles because you might have to go up or go down in dose. You also don't want to have six follicles respond. You're typically looking for one to two based on your age. So goal number one is it might take time to find an ovulatory dose. Number two, once you find an ovulatory dose, then how many months do you do treatment before you move on? It's typically about six at the most. Not everybody will do all six treatments, but after six, if you're not pregnant, it starts to statistically become less likely that you'll get pregnant. It's not zero, and so I never say never in their circumstances, but definitely if you're not pregnant after six, you should be talking to a fertility doctor about what to do next. All right, and similarly, do you use Clomid or Letrozole days five to nine, even if your cycles are irregular? Well, a couple things. One is you can use those medications as early as day three or as late as day five, and then you take them for five days. What we know is that you should start them at the beginning of your cycle or while you're bleeding. And if your periods are irregular, you might have to induce a bleed with progesterone like Provera, or you might need to come off of some birth control pills. Either are fine, but you can't just randomly start them, even if your periods are irregular. And that can be really frustrating and why some people have to wait forever to get that first period going. I'm a big fan of a progesterone withdrawal to just get this show on the road if we know you're anovulatory. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed some of those questions. I do appreciate you guys as we are entering into our fourth year. And more than anything, the podcast has hit over 2 million downloads. You've been with me through so many life changes. I can't tell you how thankful I am to you. And thank you for listening to some of my vulnerabilities today, sharing a piece of my story. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.